You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to join you, as is our custom, on our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you will, if you have a Bible or a smartphone or some ability to get access to a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a smartphone, uh, you will also see a paperback Bible and the tray of the chair in front of you. Don't be afraid to take that as our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. In fact, if you know someone else who doesn't own a Bible, make that our gift to them. Uh, And so uh, don't be afraid of the table of contents as we journey through this together. We believe there's treasures in the scripture for us, whether this is the first or the thousandth time that you've opened the Bible. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. There's something powerful that we believe happens uh, that, that we learned that as we, as we quote some of our kind of uh, old saint dead heroes, that when we open the Bible, the Bible actually begins to open us. And so we've been, as a church, being opened by, as it were, in the Gospel of Matthew for the last couple of years. We'll wrap up our time in the Gospel of Matthew on Easter, uh, this, this coming end of March. And so as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves in what I'll say is the last third of the Gospel of Matthew, where, where in the first two-thirds, roughly, of Matthew's Gospel, G- Matthew has told us the eyewitness account of Jesus and his teaching and his life and ministry and covered about 30 to 33 years in the first two-thirds. Whereas like the other gospels, everything slows down and zooms in and the last whole third of the gospel, all we cover is one single week. That is to zoom in on, if this were the part of the movie where the, the intense and climactic music rises and everything goes into slow motion, the last week of Jesus is the focus, the focal point of each of these gospels. That is The word gospel literally means good news, and so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four of those gospels are telling us the good news of Jesus' teaching and life, but more powerfully, as we see here in the last third, the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for this final week of his life, we'll be in chapter 26, we'll be reading the first 16 verses, spending most of our time and energy looking at the first 13, and so as we read... I want you to remember that as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and begun teaching, he's just concluded, we'll see in the very first verse here, the last of five prominent discussions, the last of five discourses, famous sermons that included the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and and even the last discourse we saw, which is a a tale and warning of woe and curse, of of the calamity that will befall Jerusalem and even the temple in that very next generation, and then the return of Jesus that would bring about judgment and restoration. So beginning in verse 26, when Jesus had finished saying, or finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. 
And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We believe that this is God's word. I want to talk to you today about PDA. I'm going to talk to you today about public displays of affection. I want you to be able to lean in with me to the awkwardness and creepiness of people publicly showing affection to one another. And I know many of you in the room, even now, you feel self-conscious. I'm not talking about you. What is PDA, you ask? I don't encourage you to Google this, but this, I guess I'm an expert on the matter, is from eHarmony. What does PDA mean in a relationship? And what are the do's and don'ts that you should follow? We explore public displays of affection. First, let's address the definition. A PDA, or a public display of affection, is the term used to describe any form of physical contact, contact between couples in a public setting. It includes everything from kissing and cuddling to holding hands or exchanging light touches. What does PDA mean? Lean into the creepiness with me here. Let's go. Everyone has a different definition of what's acceptable when it comes to public displays of affection. Some couples would never dream of going beyond holding hands or linking arms outside of their house, while others are comfortable being all over each other wherever they are. Even so, it's the reaction of onlookers that really matters. While you're wrapped up in the romance of it all, witnesses to your public displays of affection could feel anything from horror and disgust to delight. It's all about context. Consider where you are and who's around. This is the best. A good rule of thumb is whether you'd be happy with your grandparents watching. I don't... Okay. Hand-holding may be fine, but you probably wouldn't indulge in heavy petting. Lean in. Lean in. It's uncomfortable. It's important. Lean in. Be creeped out. Take the setting into account. Are you enjoying a romantic stroll on the banks of a river with almost no one around you? Or are you crammed into the corner of a packed subway? Only one of these is PDA appropriate. People who object to PDA, <laughs> PDAs, I don't, public, it's plural now, often wonder why couples would do it. Why do they feel the need to involve everyone rather than just simply be affectionate behind closed doors? It's more understandable in those passionate early days when you can't keep your hands off each other, 
But in an established relationship, overt displays of affection seem more about performance than genuine feeling. I need to share with you my own experience of PDA. I know, it gets worse. (laughs) As a child and as a teenager, my mom and dad used to kiss and make out in the kitchen. Yeah, I know. Let's go. Let, let it feel it. Feel it. Feel it with me. And as a child, I would, I, man, I, we, we would get a room, right? Ugh. It was jarring. It was, there was something about it that's, that, makes, that would make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, at least for, in terms of a child or a teenager, when you see that, it, it makes you start thinking about things that you'd rather not think about. Now, uh, I can share with you now as a grown man, and, and as an encouragement as we're thinking about parenting and children, there has been no greater gift that my parents have given to me than to show their love and affection to one another. There has been no greater, uh, right, there's been no greater influence than to see my father, for example, openly and publicly love my mother. And, and if you're, and, and even, like, if you begin to even think about your own family story, the absence or presence of that visible affection has a, probably a more profound effect on you than you're willing to admit. Now, if that weren't creepy enough, I enjoy kissing my wife in the kitchen. And I enjoy so much my own children yelling like a family tradition passed on from one generation to the next get a room oh the delight of the gift that we are giving them that they don't even realize what is it about people showing affection to one another that creeps us out on one hand theologically it's the effect of the fall that is that Once sin made us aware of our sinful and broken nakedness, all displays of affection are are seen through a lens of unrighteousness and sin. We, We can't see love and affection purely. That's what sin has darkened our eyes to see. And on the other hand, it's just jarring and stirring. When we see that kind of affection, it makes us think about things that we don't want to think about. Now, I want to invite you to lean into that jarring phenomenon of public displays of affection this morning because that is exactly what this woman did for Jesus. I want to look at two different things as we see the setting, the context here. I want us to examine what she did and then why she would do it. What did she do and why did she do it? What was this extravagant display of affection all about and why did she do it the first five verses set the stage and as you saw uh, you won't be any stranger to this if you've been reading Matthew along with us but the the structure of eastern culture isn't like western literature while while western literature typically builds up to the climax at the end as it were most eastern literature at least eastern hebrew literature has the climax or the meaning in a literal like in a in a in a, in a literal sense in the center So you saw the the bookends of the section of text that we just read were what? They were about betrayal. They were about murder. And they were specifically about what the chief priests, the priests themselves were doing. So when Jesus gives a prediction, he says, you know this is going to happen. You know that the Passover is coming. They would have absolutely known that. This would have been like saying, you know Christmas is around the corner. Every person would know when when Christmas is going to take place. You know this is going to happen, but 
and, and the multiple times that he's already done this, Jesus does it again. He says, this is when the Son of Man, the language of Daniel, that the incarnate one, God come to take on the flesh of humanity, will be delivered up and be crucified. Jarring, as it were, that we can regularly begin to think that Jesus was simply, simply a, a teacher who said nice things, but after all, you don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear. And it's as if he says, you know, when we find out later that they didn't really know. But then the bookends are displayed. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Quite literally, that language, to arrest Jesus by stealth, is to do so by deception, so the first thing I want you to remember, we'll, we'll fly through these kind of beginning and end things here to, to see what this woman does and why she does it. But Jesus is not universally welcomed. That might be the most painfully obvious thing to say. After all, the symbol of Christianity, the symbol of the Christian faith is what? It is a public marker of how Jesus was not universally accepted. That even the people he came that you would think would welcome him, the Gospel of John tells us, did not receive him. Right? It should be fresh on your memory, uh, on your memory this season of Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus was welcomed so much that what? He was put in a feeding trough. People were so excited that, his, that the Redeemer and King of the world had come that they made no room for him in the end. You get the idea? Now, it might seem like an obvious thing to state, but it's very important. It's the context for the rest of the chapter we'll come back to. it. The second thing you see in this section is that opposition, opposition to Jesus always takes a truth versus fill-in-the-blank. They were trying to plot together in verse 4 to arrest Jesus by stealth, by secret. This is another theme that we'll see for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but you'll see throughout the other Gospels. There's probably no, powerful, no more powerful picture of this than when even at Jesus, right before Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus answers, you're the one that are saying I'm a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. This is powerful language, right? If someone came up to you and, you, and, and spoke of their purpose of coming into the world. Like, we don't, we don't usually talk that way. If I say, this is why I've come into the world. Like, wow, you, that, that's, that's heavy language. He says, I've come into the world for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is something you will see regularly over and over and over again. The marks of this gospel movement are truth. That as gospel people, we know the truth Jesus encourages us. The truth, even hard truth, even difficult truth. Truth that we would rather hide. Truth that doesn't benefit us. Truth that might even benefit our enemy. That truth ultimately sets us free. That what is true and ultimate is known by God. This is particularly powerful. I'll try to do this as regularly as I can to provoke you as intentionally as I can. It is an election year. Um, where the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and accept different results. And so people are like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, you remember 2020? Remember that time? That was our favorite year in the whole world, right? I love 2020. You get the idea? But as this happens, oh well. Here's what I want to encourage you. As people changed by the gospel, we are people who are marked by truth. Truth. What if, like, uh, right, like uh, Paul's encouragement to the Philippians, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
So let me just see how, right? If, remember what I told you, Jesus is not universally welcomed and Jesus' people aren't universally welcomed either. What if this year you just committed yourself to saying only that which is true and only that which is reasonable? I dare you. Even further, I dare you to repent of anything else. Why? Because opposition to Jesus is always marked as a truth versus fill in the blank. There's always something hidden, something deceptive. Anytime you see a lie, right? I love, and and it, here's, here's how you know culturally we're in it. Uh, when you use phrase like al- alternate facts or disinformation, because we just don't know what the word lie means, like morally a lie is not good enough, it's, dis- it's misinformation. It's like, I think that's called a lie. Know that the work of the enemy is at hand, and gospel people have been called and empowered to live in light of that and know that there's something better. That which is true is ultimately good. That's the bookend of this section. In fact, you see the the further end of the bookend, beginning in verse 14, is what? A deceptive, quiet meeting between Judas to betray Jesus himself. So now in the middle, right? The climax, as it were, of this particular passage. We're introduced to a woman. Now, I'll tell you this, as you read the other Gospels, uh, the Gospel of John tells us about this woman and tells us that this woman is none other than Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Now, as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, I've tried my best to stay in Matthew and let Matthew tell the story he wants to tell. So I've tried not to, at every given moment, well, here's what Mark said, here's what Luke said. I really do believe Matthew has a lesson for us. Matthew has something powerful for us. But notice the setting. Jesus communes with people he has healed. It, seem, it might seem like an idle tale, because notice he doesn't name the woman. The Gospel of John names this woman, but for Matthew, it's less about the name of this woman. After all, literarily, that's usually what happens when there's a nameless person. The reader is supposed to intuitively insert themselves into that nameless person, right? The, the John Doe or Jane Doe of the story is intentionally left unidentified because as the reader, you, you can already start to identify your, with that person. And so look what this, just an idle little tale that Matthew throws in there. Jesus was at Bethany and he was at the house of Simon the leper. That already should grab your attention. You don't go to the house of people with leprosy. Not in the first century. You're already meant to see something powerful, like something's happening here. Something special about this Jesus. Why would they go hang out with this person who had leprosy? Don't they? And, and they're like, oh, I get it. So they're gathering together because after all, if your friend is healed of, a, of an illness like that, you get together and celebrate, tell stories. That's what they were doing in the Gospel of John. Evidently like reminiscing of, hey, remember Lazarus when our brother was dead and, and now he's not dead and he's right there. You get the idea? So look, Jesus is communing with the people that he has healed. And in that setting... In that celebration of who Jesus is, we see this powerful, courageous act of this woman. Because we know that God has created us to be deeply and fully satisfied in Him. The story of the Bible, and especially if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, lean in and hear this. The story of the Bible is how God has created all of humanity for a purpose, to enjoy Him, to delight in Him, to be satisfied in Him. Sin has entered in and broken that, and that's where our dissatisfaction comes from. And when we're fully and completely resting in, delighting in, hoping in, finding our joy in Him, who God is and what He has done for us, it overflows into worship. Dare I say, it overflows into public displays of affection. 
public displays of affection, like all public displays of affection, that if you're really honest, as an onlooker, kind of creep you out. Let's lean into that. This woman comes and at this house, she takes an alabaster flask. This would have been a, a precious, uh, think of a, uh, not just a precious uh, content, but the pre- precious container. And it says that she poured it onto the head of Jesus. We're meant to get this powerful picture of, of, of that which is of utmost value, an anointing. Now, Matthew is intentionally ambiguous here. We're meant to wonder. We're not meant to know, and some, some might speculate, well, she was anointing him as king. Well, we don't know that she doesn't say that. Instead, it was just simply, for the people watching, an act of love, a great act of love, to take that which is immensely valuable. Now, anytime we translate values from like New Testament to modern, it's difficult, but the best way to think about it, this is about the average year salary. That's what this would have been worth. Roughly a year's salary. Now, that's important to remember because it's not that this woman made a year's salary. It's that by some, by some means, she now possessed a year's salary, right? It's not anything for you to earn, right, to earn a year's salary. What if you had a year's salary in the bank, in your pocket? Now you get to see what's happening here. And so I want to begin to reflect on that and ask you this question. What is the thing you value most? What's the most valuable thing in your life? It may be concrete. It may be tangible. It may be emotional or relational. What is the thing that if you were to lose it, you wouldn't be able to go on living? What is the thing apart from which you have no joy, you have no comfort, you have no satisfaction? One of the ways you can begin to reveal this, if you're in loving, gracious community, you can just ask the people around you, hey, what's the thing uh, that I seem to value the most? They'll lovingly and graciously tell you. Think of it this way, what's the thing that you're most afraid of losing? What's the thing that causes you to react the the most powerfully when it's threatened? Because make no mistake about it, This story is told to invite the disciples and the listeners to ask these kinds of questions. Because to follow Jesus is to begin to consider that Jesus, the power of God to redeem and restore, is the most valuable thing. It is the great treasure. And you can't think about Jesus as the greatest treasure in the world unless you're honest about that which is actually the greatest treasure in your world. So friend, even if you can't think of something right now, I commend this reflection for the rest of the day. In fact, I wouldn't reflect on much more than that. What is the most valuable thing that you possess? What's the thing that you value the most in the world? Because notice what happens. This woman takes that which is an heirloom. It likely is something that was passed on to her. Uh, or otherwise, they would have had to save up a great, deal, uh, a, a great deal for this. And this is a powerful kind of currency, isn't it? There are some things across time and across cultures and across markets that don't translate. But there are some things that maintain value, like gold, like precious stones, precious valuable materials. And one thing that still remains a, lux- a luxurious valuable item is perfume. It still costs a lot. Smelling good is expensive in lots of ways. 
And notice this valuable thing, worth a year's wages, as it were. Think of it as an irreplaceable sum for this kind of a person. is simply opened up and poured out over Jesus. Now, remember that creepy reflection upon PDA, upon public displays of affection? It happens right here. Notice that the minute she does this, the people around them were what? Indignant. They were indignant. After all, that's what public displays of affection do. They, they make you feel either kind of like excluded or, as I said to you earlier, they make you think about things that you don't really want to think about. Now, I don't know what that was for these people, but for whatever it was, it made them think about something else. The, the value as they saw it was incompatible. It was incongruent. Notice this, the world will always scold great devotion to Jesus. That is what onlookers will do. And that's important for us this morning for a couple of reasons. One is, again, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian or you're curious about this, this whole Jesus thing, um, lean into this. Like, I, 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 hopefully we wouldn't ever try to justify what we're doing as though it's rational or reasonable. A few moments ago, we sang together to Jesus and, and, I, and if you're not a Christian, that should kind of make you feel weird. You should be like, What's, this is weird. Why are you doing this? Exactly. That's it. Lean in. That's, that kind of display of affection will always look weird until you've seen Jesus. I'm paraphrasing one commentarian, but I think it says it most powerfully. All, the onlookers saw, all that the onlookers saw was the perfume and its value. All this woman saw was Jesus and his. All the onlookers could see was the value and cost of this perfume. But notice the powerful act of devotion all this woman can see was Jesus. And by her math, by her math, it made perfect sense to lay one aside for the other. Remember that question I asked? What's the thing that you value most? When we see who Christ is and what he has done, the onlookers will think it is weird because all they will see is the thing and its value. And by some miracle of faith, all we see is Jesus and his. The world will always scold it. The world will always say, keep it or spend it or invest it or protect it. And when you don't do that, when you live a life of otherworldly loyalty to Jesus, I want to warn you in this room, if you would call yourself a Christian, don't try to avoid this. It's like PDA, it's going to creep everybody out. They're going to say, keep that to yourself. There's a time and place for that. Get a room. And while everyone in the room was looking on, especially those who criticized, and notice, even the disciples, they just saw the value of the perfume. They saw their own, right, they saw their own kind of devices. Here's what you should do with this. Now notice, as we read the Gospel of Matthew in context, the most important things will start to come out, as we said this last week. After all, Jesus is not dismissing the poor. In fact, he has identified so much with those in need, the poor that were in the last chapter, such that he says, if you don't care for these people, you have rejected me. But you are my sheep. You are the ones who know my voice, separated on my right hand, and the evidence that you are my sheep and that you belong to me is that you care for the people in need. Why? Because you know what it means to be in need. 
to know and love Jesus is to know what it means to be hopeless and helpless and yet to have found hope and help. And so you and I identify with and have a deep sympathy and empathy for those people in need. He's not giving some sort of cynical, well, like you can't, you're never going to fix poverty or you're never, that's not what he's doing. In fact, he says what is done here is a great work. Beautiful is what the translation I read says. Quite literally, it's a good work. In rabbinical tradition, there would have been multiple lists of, there would have been multiple things on the list of good works. One of them would be to give to the poor, but one of them also would be to bury the dead. But notice the power of what this woman does. After all, in this sense, any time is a good time to care for people in need. But to bury the dead is to do a good work at a very specific and necessary time. There are powerful insights into the, I don't know, the, I'll say creepiness, but also just the provocative nature of this display of affection. The Gospel of John, we find out that not only did this woman anoint the head of Jesus, but she anointed the feet of Jesus, and she began to wipe Jesus' very feet with her hair. With her hair. What a beautiful picture. After all, now you know why Jesus says, for any place that there's a gospel movement, you're going to remember and note this woman with the ointment, with the nard, as it were, with this perfume she gave all that she had, but by wiping her, his feet with her hair, she gave all that she was. This is no joke. After all, the Apostle Paul even begins to speak about this in his letters to New Testament churches as he's beginning to encourage these Christians to live in light of how God has created them and redeemed them in Jesus. And he, and he speaks of men and women, how they relate and honor and serve one another. And one of the ways that he points out is that a woman and her hair is her glory, right? It is good and right, ladies. Your hair is glorious. This is a good and godly and right thing to say. Your hair is glorious. But do you see it? Do you see what this woman is saying? The scandal, the powerful and provocative nature of her devotion, I lay all my glory at your feet. I lay it down. My greatest glory is good only to wipe your feet. Literally, I'm letting my hair down for you. Not only do I give you everything, but I trust you with everything. What a powerful picture. This woman saying to Jesus, I am safer if all that I have and all that I am is in the hands of Jesus. Now, We then are called to great devotion and or acts of great devotion because of Christ's death and resurrection. We are invited to, in fact, rationally speaking, are commanded to adore Jesus above all things. We are invited and commanded to, as a matter of math, to see the value of that which we own and possess, that which we have and that which we are, and weighed against the value and measure of Jesus, who He is and what He has done for us, and be willing to sacrifice one for the other. So we've talked about what she's done. But let's talk for just a moment about why and how she would do it. Because after all, even this moment, this is hopefully where you kind of feel the effects of PDA. 
as I'm telling you, love and sacrifice everything for Jesus. Remember that thing that you value the most, that you're the most sensitive about, the most defensive of, right? That most th- the thing you're most insecure about? Lay that down for Jesus. There ought to be something in you that feels the tension. It feels like, I, how, how would I do that? How would I even begin to live a life that values and treasures Jesus above all else? Well, notice what happened. Why did she do it and how could she do it? She saw something powerful. Did you hear what Jesus said? It wasn't just that she expressed great love and devotion. It was that she anointed him for a specific purpose. Now, we don't get the motives. This is the powerful part of, of, uh, of the intentionally nebulous components of Matthew's gospel. He doesn't tell us the motives of Judas, and he doesn't even tell us the motives of this woman. We don't know. You're meant to, you're meant to in that mystery, you can fill it in with whatever you want, I guess, but you're meant to go like, I guess God was doing something. And it isn't even even clear that this woman knows what she's doing. But Jesus tells us what she was doing. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done so to what? To prepare me for burial. Go back to the first verses of the chapter that we read. What was the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples? You know the Passover is coming, a powerfully symbolic time. You know I've been predicting this. You know I've been telling you now that we're here, this is what's going to happen. This is it. This is when the Son of Man will be delivered and be crucified. It's as if the disciples heard that, did not believe, but by some mystery, this woman did. It's as if she tangibly said, fine, if you're going to die, if you're going to be buried, then here you go. Now, as readers of the Gospel of Matthew, this should grab your attention. One of the very first things that happened miraculously in the birth narrative of Jesus was what? We get this profound picture in the Gospel of Matthew we'll see more of as the end draws near, but Matthew introduces us to Jesus so that we will get Jesus and understand and trust Jesus, and the way that he introduces us to Jesus is by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus, and he holds them up side by side so that we'll go like, that's weird, and you see that here, don't you? The very disciples of Jesus— They're the ones that are indignant. They're the ones who are creeped out by great love and devotion to Jesus. But at the very beginning of the story, do you remember the list of people that get Jesus? There was a woman that Jesus facetiously refers to as a dog, as a picture of of her devotion and desire to hear from God and and, and to receive great blessing. And Jesus says to her, a, a, a a Canaanite woman says that you have great faith. Another one was a centurion, a centurion who said, Jesus, you don't have to come with me to heal my servant. You just say it. I'm under authority. I know how authority works. You have authority. You say it. It's done. And what does Jesus say? To an outsider, you have great faith. Even the calling of Matthew, a tax collector, the outsider of outsiders, is a picture of this powerful acceptance and radical welcome of Jesus. The people who get Jesus and the people who don't get Jesus. They're they're paradoxical. But do you remember the first set of people that got Jesus that were a paradox? a bunch of pagan magicians traveling from the east. And do you remember some of the gifts that they offer to this baby Jesus? Well, we don't know he's a baby. That Gospel of Matthew doesn't say his age. They come to this child Jesus and offer what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Valuable gifts. But two of them, a type of perfume which were most certainly used in death to preserve the body and to ward off as long as one could the decay, the putrid smell of a rotting flesh. The Gospel of John says the smell of the perfume filled the house. That would have been a familiar 
particular smell for many people, that aroma. After all, they didn't have funeral homes. You would keep a decaying body as long as you could before burial in a home. There was only a short amount of time you could do that. And so look at this powerful act of faith juxtaposed with great acts of betrayal. Look at this powerful act of devotion, but notice how she was able to do it. It wasn't just that she loved him for his kindness, his miracles, his mercy, and his teaching. That was certainly true. She was expressing an act of devotion, an act of faith in light of his death. This is it. We're called to great acts of devotion to Jesus, but even more powerfully, we are called to be devoted to Jesus for his death. You can't, after all, see who Jesus is. You can have adoration and affection for lots of things that Jesus does, but you will be missing, on out, missing out on who he really is until you see his death. His death. Think of it as like the creepiest, most uncomfortable part of a great act of, de- of devotion, a great display of affection of God to the world. One that you can hardly look at. Because after all, remember what I told you? In a great act of, uh, in a public display of devotion, public display of affection even with your parents, it makes you think about things you don't want to think about. There was something about the cross that reminds us of things that we don't want to be reminded of. We would like to think that our sin is not that bad. You're not that bad. You're pretty good people. Certainly no one should have to die for you. None of you are that bad. None of the things that you've done in this room are that bad, that it would cost a man his life, an innocent man his life. Do you feel it? There's no greater reminder of the intimate and powerful and public act of devotion of God than the, than the cross. Look, Romans 5 says it this way, that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, For a good person, one would care to die. But God shows his love. Here, PDA. Here, uncomfortable, provocative display of affection. That God has shown his love for us. That while we were still sinner, Christ did what? Died. Hear the uncomfortable truth. Jesus came not just to teach, not just to heal. He came to die. He came as a sacrifice for those that needed payment. There is an evil that Jesus comes to conquer. And while we would like to think that it's anything else, this powerful act of devotion reminds us that it's about his death. There's an evil that Jesus came to rule over. It's not the liberals. It's not the Trumpers or MAGA. It's not any personality, political or national, you can imagine right now. It's not the Justice Department. It's not Joe Biden. It's not even poverty. It's not injustice. Jesus came to rule over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And the most provocative, again, for the onlooking world, the creepiest, weirdest act of devotion is that we look at the death of Jesus and one of two things will happen. Either like an immature child who sees his parents kissing will go, ugh, I don't want to think about that. Or hopefully like a mature person will go, wow, what great love and affection. Friend, see the provocative nature of her act of devotion. Jesus came with a purpose. 
He came with a mission to heal and restore that which is most deeply broken in you and me. Our separation from a loving and righteous God. And this is the powerful thing. How will I have devotion? How will I have this kind of love? Friend, you have to see his first. This woman's story, it will be, which will be, right, will be told forever, is meant to be a picture The great act of devotion here wasn't this priceless alabaster jar being broken on the head of Jesus. That was but a foretaste. Friend, Jesus was the priceless alabaster flask of treasure. The great priceless heirloom of our Heavenly Father, broken and poured out for you and for me. How are you going to stir up that kind of love and affection? You You can't do it. The only way you can do it is when you see His. The only way that you can start to feel your own heart's grip on the things of this world loosen, even but a bit, is when you see him and his value. So friend, look on him. Look on him. See how, uh, I love how, uh, I love how different uh, kind of artists and, uh, and, and literary figures have just described the, the great heart, right? The, the greatness and largeness of heart. Isn't a person who's loving and affectionate always a bigger person? Right? If you're around someone who's just magnanimous and loving and, and public in their display, they're bigger. The world gets bigger. The life gets bigger. Everything's bigger. They're like, hey, come see this thing. Did you see this thing? I want you to meet this. Right? Have you ever heard this? Like, I'm so excited. Come, join the thing. See this beautiful, right? Come look at this painting. Taste this thing. The people who are, are full of that kind of love, free to love publicly, display that kind of admiration. They invite you in. They're huge. Haven't you ever wanted to be that? Aren't you drawn to people like that? Well, how do you get there? Because after all, we know the opposite is also true for those of us who are not filled with that kind of love, not changed by that kind of love, but are hardened. Isn't the world always getting smaller? Come look at this awful thing over here. Look at that awful person. Oh, those people. Did you hear it? Smallness and narrowing of the world. Friend, when you start to see the largesse, the most powerful public display of affection in the history of the world, it will creep you out at first. Welcome. Join in on the people who celebrate that Christ has died. He has accomplished at the cross something that we could not, and Christ is risen. He is vindicated. He is glorified. What he has offered is perfect and good. So friend, why is this a big deal? Why is this, uh, this act of affection such a, a, a prominent story that Christians will repeat as long as they're talking about Jesus? Because the great act of love is ultimately the act of love demonstrated for us. There is now a lingering aroma that hovers those of us in Christ because the priceless heirloom that is Jesus has been broken and poured out on us. 1 Corinthians 11, after all, every time we celebrate communion, what does the Apostle Paul say you do? Every time you celebrate communion, you're doing what? You proclaim his what? Death. You proclaim his death until he comes. Let that encourage you. Let that renew you. Public displays of affection are unsettling. They stir you. Friend, let her display of affection stir you and provoke you. Let her willingness to let go of earthly things for the sake of a greater treasure in Jesus provoke you this morning. Let it rebuke you. Let it do its work. 
But even greater, as you wonder about that, let the Father's public display of affection stir you. Let it provoke you that the priceless heirloom and treasure has been broken willingly for the delight and glory of the Father and the joy of his people. Let it creep you out if it must. And then join us. Join us. And those who are basking in the aroma of this gift poured out for you and for me. Let's respond now by praying together. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord. Lord, thank you so much that you are good and kind to us. Thank you that you are merciful to us. Lord, we've already gotten to celebrate good gifts today, good gifts of life, good gifts of family. We thank you. These are, these are gifts that we ourselves could not have invented or thought up. These are gifts that are a reflection of your very heart. Thank you that you've shown that to us today. But Father, thank you also for this gift of devotion this woman demonstrates for us. Like the disciples, might it stir us. And like Matthew, might we begin to have the courage to tell a story even when it makes us look silly. Like Matthew, might we even be able to confess, man, we were right there and we didn't even see it. <laughs> we saw her loving Jesus and we had, we had the audacity and folly to, to rebuke her. Might that provoke us even this morning to confessing all the ways that we fail to love you as we ought. That rather than being satisfied in you, we're satisfied in lesser things. Rather than loving and enjoying the creator, we trade that for creation. But as that begins to settle over us, now show us Jesus. Let us see the most public, spectacular, historical display of affection. Let us see and hear and experience the love of the Father that you have willingly come to be with us and for us, to take on a role you did not deserve and bear the brunt of sin that you had not earned, so that those of us who had earned it and who had deserved it would only know the aroma, the powerful and pleasing aroma, the anointing, the consecration to divine family. Might some in this room begin to even today for the first time receive by faith this gift that was poured out for us. May we respond in faith to receive this great gift, broken, naked, betrayed, crucified, and raised again, all to demonstrate the love of the Father. Might we receive that love now in Jesus' name. Amen.